Hiya, Duncan Green here, uh, back from holiday, a staycation in Scotland where miraculously it didn't rain, it was warm, and we got to swim in lochs and in the sea, which wasn't warm, but it was still a really nice holiday, so feeling refreshed, pumped. I uh, got back to find that the techies in Oxfam had moved the podcast onto Buzzsprout. This will only be relevant to other techies, I'm sure. And if you're listening to this, that means that there hasn't been a glitch and that I've been able to upload it and you've been able to find it, which is good. On with the substance. So got going again after getting back. Um, got a bump pack of eight posts to summarise here um, from the last week and a half. So first up was a guest post by Suchi Pandey um, of the Accountability Research Centre in Washington, which is a really good outfit doing what it says on the tin, researching accountability. Um, and she's looking at a really important issue right now, which is governments around the world are spending vast amounts of money on different aspects of COVID response, procurement, research, social protection. And uh, Sushi Pandey's uh, focus was um, how to make spending on social protection accountable and looking at what's happened in India. Because India has both an incredibly uh, well-known social protection scheme and a less well-known Pro, um, uh, uh, system of social audits. So social protection are services that help protect people against economic shock. So in, in the North, pensions um, would be a typical one or unemployment benefit and um, uh, cash transfers all over the world and this kind of thing. And the, the well-known one in India is the Employment Guarantee Scheme, whereby anybody in rural India can... Uh, ask and get a hundred days of minimum wage employment per year, which is a really low wage, so no one's getting rich off this. But it's been a very effective scheme for the people who are really at the bottom of the heap uh, in order to guarantee them some work. So it's cash for work, basically. Social audits are organised by citizens to um, audit public services and help improve them. So is the money be arriving? Is it being well spent? And so on. A couple of quotes from that piece. <clears throat> in India, social audits have used government information on programme implementation together with worker testimonies, physical verification of work sites and citizen input during participatory forums to look at the implementation of the, of the uh, Employment Guarantee Scheme um, and to identify and redress problems. And her conclusion is, it is in the interest of governments seeking to manage the pandemic well to enable civil society to exact accountability. Social audits may well yet save India's flailing relief effort and rebuild trust lost through the callous lockdown policies that hurt some of the poorest and most marginalised Indians the most. And this, needless to say, is not just about India, that the, the um, social audits offer the way, a, a way of making sure that COVID money is spent well and the citizens end up trusting governments and having a better relationship with com uh, governments. Um, and that could apply anywhere, including, I have to say, the UK. Second post was something I, I was musing about on holiday when I bumped into a friend of mine, Claire Dixon, who for decades at CAFOD uh, campaigned for the canonization of Archbishop Romero, who was the archbishop who was uh, assassinated in El Salvador in 1980. Uh, for his defence of the poor during the civil war there. Um, and it always struck me when I worked at CAFOD that this was a fairly obscure and sort of um, weird thing to campaign on. But I've actually come round to it now when I realise that 
They've succeeded after nearly 40 years of work. Romero was canonised, he's now Saint Oscar Romero, canonised in 2018. And that means that for as long as the Catholic Church survives, which who knows how many centuries that'll be, um, there will be a special place for this saint. Children will be named after, after him and his views on social justice will be part of the Catholic formation. And that seems to me like an enormous normative win. So I'm just really interested in how that happened and no one has written it up. So what this post is about is three of these case studies, which I think are really interesting, and I have yet to find decent write-ups of them as advocacy case studies. So the second one, modern slavery appeared, as far as I know, out of Theresa May's home office in the mid-2010s. Theresa May, who subsequently became prime minister, was at that point the home minister. Um, and it was basically a rebranding of a long dis of a previous discussion on labor rights and extreme exploitation which had huge effects i think it got you know a law was passed people started you know government advice was this is all in the uk as far as i know but it became a rebranding of an old issue and very successful and the surprising thing for me is that it was a conservative government who are not known for this kind of thing rather than the labor government which might be more predictable so Another really interesting. Who came up with that? How did it happen? Why? How did they sell it to a government that was in the middle of uh, austerity and a lot of you know um, difficult um, uh, politics? Third one, rather more mundane, but for me very important. When I, when I was raising my kids, yeah, some time ago now, going to the park was a bit of a, a lottery. You basically didn't know whether they were going to come back covered in dog poo or not. And now I'm just astonished by how the behaviour of dog owners has changed and everybody has their little doggy bag and picks up their doggy's poo, which is not a nice thing to do. So you've got a mass change in behaviours, which is about people doing something unpleasant on a personal level for the public good. And again, I haven't, I've asked and I've never been able to find a good account of how that normative shift happened. So... Lots of comments, uh, especially about dog poo. People get very exercised about dog poo. Lots of comments in, in, in on the blog, but no takers to actually do those advocacy case studies as yet. I would love to see it. So if you're out there and you're looking for an interesting case study in normative change, please grab one of these and then tell me you're doing it. Third up was John Hall from Think Tank in ASP talking about cracks in the knowledge system. Whose knowledge is valued in a pandemic and beyond? And this is a kind of um, this is a subject we've come back to a few times on the blog, which is that, um, as John puts it, COVID has shown us once again the processes of exclusion that are baked into the ways in which we produce, communicate and use knowledge. So knowledge is not a neutral thing. Knowledge is not always an objective thing. Knowledge emerges from a political system uh, and a system of incentives and a system of imbalances of power. So John points to questions of infrastructure, who can study and work and be part of the many discussions taking place, but also a voice whose ideas and knowledge are valued. And he's got a, some nice some nice quotes. He got picked up a lot on, on social media and lots of quotes from the piece have been floating around. More Southern researchers doing the work isn't enough if that work is still constrained by the norms and metrics which decide what excellence and quality look like. Those tend to be set in the north and are then pushed into southern systems directly or indirectly as a result of funding. So where the money comes from from research massively shapes what is 
counted as research and what is valued as research. So John's conclusion is we need to recognise that inequity within knowledge systems is not an accident. It is fundamentally about power and it therefore follows that to address these inequities we must be prepared to disturb those asymmetries of power and to be ready to change our own role if you're on the powerful side of this uh, knowledge economy. Um, so nice piece there. Fourth post uh, in this roundup was a links I liked, which I won't go through because this is quite a long podcast already. But <clears throat> the one that really clearly resonated people was a lovely graphic, which uh, I was sent on data, knowledge, wisdom and conspiracy theories. Uh, you can't describe a graphic. I will put it on the blog with the with the podcast uh, so you can go and see it if you want to see it. Fifth was uh, an outgoing colleague at Oxfam, Ollie Pierce, uh, who's been our tax campaigner, tax uh, guru for five years. And he was just doing a sort of reflection piece on what has five years of tax campaigns achieved. And the answer is quite a lot. So he did a sort of glass half full bit. So he talked about there are now international negotiations on a corporate minimum effective tax rate, which we would never have anticipated at the start of all this. There's been some significant national progress. Ollie pointed to Vietnam, where the government now requires large multinationals to share details of their tax payments on a country by country basis with them. And there's been some progress in the UK on tax havens, you know, a register of who really owns the companies that are registered in tax havens. But Ollie's a campaigner and campaigners are never satisfied. Their glass is never full. So he points out some of the things we still need to progress on and what the, the, the agenda for the next five years of campaigning. There's still no law to require large companies to publish tax and related data on a country by country basis, which is when you can start to see what's really going on. And beyond that, there's still the underlying dynamic of tax competition. So a large company can go to one country and say, unless you give me a tax break, I'm going next door. And then they can go next door and say, unless you're giving me a tax break, I'm going next door. And so you get this race to the bottom where countries are forced to compete for investment and jobs by lowering their tax rates, which means fewer benefits for the people from that foreign investment. Um, so that we still haven't cracked that. And then um, the, the, he, he talks about a whole series, but but the other one I would pick out is wealth taxation. That all most taxation is based on income or expenditure, you know, sales taxes. What about taxing wealth? Because that's where the great disparities are, and there have been some good discussions on that. Sixth was um, a governance guru, Graham Teskey, who's based in Australia, who used to be a, the head of Africa, I think, head of African department at DFID. And every time he writes something on the blog, it gets massive hits. And this was no exception. So this one, Graham sent me, I, I was asking for some advice and he sent me an internal briefing he's got at his, at his yeah, the management consultancy company where he works, ABT. And I thought it was so good. I said, could I publish it? So he said, sure. So I put it up and... Um, the, the, uh, the title is What is Political Economy Analysis, PEA, and Why Does It Matter in Development? So it's a really, you know, spot on briefing. Um, it talks about this thing, PEA, and political economy, which people bandy about but don't always understand. He says the starting point for any development intervention is always an analysis of the political reality of the country in which aid is being delivered. Understanding why things are as they are and not like something else. Now, that sounds kind of obvious, but you'd be amazed how many people do not use that as their starting point. Their starting point is, I've got a toolkit. This works somewhere else. Let's try it here. So this is 
really good advice, but basically it's an enormous annotated set of links um, and it's really useful. And lecturers are already saying, oh, yeah, this is going on my list. This is really good. So if you're involved in discussions of political economy, PEA, aid, good governance, check out Graham's list because it's really it's a really useful resource. Next post um, was by one of my students. So I teach a course on activism um, at uh, LSE. And we have about sort of 45, 50 students from around the world. And their job, their assignment is to come up with a campaign of their own, to do a campaign proposal, uh, which, which they get marked on. And then to, and, and as part of that, they have to write a blog or vlog, video blog, um, pitching their, their campaign. So Lucy Shearer wrote, um, uh, did her campaign on uh, the quality of air in London's tube, which I think anybody who's been on the tube, especially in summer, will, will agree is not good. Uh, but the thing that struck me is just she writes really well. So here's her writing. Here's a piece, uh, yeah, piece from the, uh, the introduction to her blog. If, like me, you are one of the two million people who use London's underground every day, you will be well accustomed to its oddities. From the stench of sweaty commuters to standoffs with battle-hardened rats, you might ask, why do we put ourselves through this torture? Along with pissing rain and gorilla pigeons, the underground is one of the many inconveniences we put up with to bask in the smug pride of calling ourselves Londoners. But is there something more sinister in the air than sweaty pits? While common belief dictates that roads are the most polluted part of our capital, a more concerning cocktail of toxic gas lies under its pavements. And the focus of her, uh, uh, her campaign is bits of particulate matter known as PM 2.5, which are all the little bits of dust and skin and general nastiness which have circulated for decades and now centuries on the underground and are very, very unhealthy. I won't go, it's a bit gross, so I won't go into it in any more detail, but um, the post is great, as is her, her, her whole project. And then the final piece of these eight posts was a book review I wrote by uh, of a book called Thinking and Working Politically in Development by John Seidel and Jaime Faustino, which is about a project I've written about quite a few times on the blog already, Coalitions for Change in the Philippines. Um, and this is a this is a an Aussie funded uh, good governance project which does some really interesting work pushing what it sees as progressive legislation in uh, uh, and other and, and other sort of good governance initiatives in the Philippines, and has managed to carry on and get some wins despite you know human rights nightmare Duterte administration and all the rest of it. And this was an attempt to um, you know John and Jaime summarise the wins. They summarise the losses or the, the partial wins, but they also summarise the failures, which I think is one of the, the characteristic features of this particular aid project is they're quite happy to talk about their failures in public and try and learn from them, which is quite good. Um, the, the writing is a little bit dense and um, I tried to unpack it a bit and then had a massive exchange with John and Jaime about whether I was being fair to the project. Um, so I suspect that that exchange might carry on in comments. But... Um, Two of the things I think that they identified as the ways that Coalitions for Change gets results. One is by out-geeking everyone. They are the uber-geeks. What they do is they, they understand the in-depth, mind-numbing details in the Philippines of how laws get passed and implemented, all the different bureaucratic hurdles you have to leap. And then 
and then they design their advocacy and their, cam their, their sort of lobbying exercise around getting past all those hurdles. I think a lot of campaigns often seem content to get the symbolic win of a new law being passed or a new regulation and don't actually f have the stamina or the knowledge to push it all the way through to actually being implemented. So they tend to stay out of the political spotlight and, uh, and, and just concentrate on you know, in the weeds, getting these laws through and being a relatively big fish in a small pond because no one else is doing that. So I think that's one of their secrets. But the other one that struck me quite interesting, but also a bit problematic, is the ones where they've had most success is where they've stayed in charge, at least initially. The book very clearly states that CFC gets the best results when it has worked autonomously to identify problems and solutions. And once they've done that, they then put together coalitions, um, get CSOs in, they hire some smart technical people or CSO operators who are technical and also politically smart. Now that <clears throat> that slightly raises alarm bells for me because it doesn't sound very locally led. You know, you basically you've got this bunch of people who uh, Jaime's a Filipino American, so but but it's a bunch of people funded by an, a foreign government deciding not just on what problem they want to address, but what solution will fix it. And only then putting it you know, out to tender, putting it out to, yeah, putting together a coalition to make it happen. I asked, uh, this, is, this was the subject of a heated exchange with Jaime and John, um, and, and Jaime disagreed. He said, look, there are, A, there are quite a few cases where leaders pursued reforms, which even I disagreed with, so they don't get to control everything. Um, but at the end of the day, I am keenly aware and respect the fact that the leaders are on the front lines given that reality, I have to give them a lot of autonomy and trust. Now, that struck me as not quite what they're saying in the book. So I think there's a discussion to be had there. Um, it's a bit inside baseball, but I, I think there's a, some really interesting questions about this whole thinking and working politically movement and what are the politics and the um, who's in charge of this movement, uh, um, uh, which I think will probably come up in the next few months. Okay, and on that obscure note, I will leave you. Have a great weekend. Talk next week.